we are on Parshat Naso this week. Uh, for those of you who I do not know or those of you listening on the podcast, my name is Rabbi Daniel Sher. I'm filling in this week for Rabbi Amy, who is uh, continuing the celebration of her daughter's graduation from high school, a very, very important, momentous moment. So we are going to study together this morning, but Rabbi Amy will be back with you next Friday for next week's portion. So we are on Parshat Naso. Just at first thought, who can tell me the first thing that comes to mind when they hear Parshat Naso? Crickets. Okay, that is not a lot of stuff about Parshat Naso. Though I'll tell you, the portion is both incredibly famous and incredibly murky at the same time. And the reason Where's for that, Bert? Where's Bert? <laughs> Bert, Bert is, is in Paris? France. So we are having a substitute of one, Rebecca who will be here to pass around the microphone to anyone who has a thought. Um, the chapter and verse that we'll be looking at will be Numbers 7, verse 1. But let's let's see if we even get to that part. Let's start by first evaluating what this portion is about. Now, in a triennial, that means that we're only going to look at that last third. Um, this portion altogether has a lot it has some very famous parts. It's got the conversations of the Nazir, those who vow themselves to God, a beautiful counterbalance to last week's discomfort about the notion that only those predetermined can serve God and the temple. The Nazir becomes a balance to that notion. Then at the end of last year's triennial, and when I say the end, I mean two verses off of what we're supposed to study. You have the Birkat HaKohanim, which eh, we'll see, maybe we'll come back to it anyways, but this beautiful piece in which God shows Aaron just how simple and beautiful it is to share blessing onto another person, becoming the first blessing in our text. And then you get to this week's portion. This year's part of the triennial is 89 verses, I believe, and goes through what can only be described as painfully repetitive uh, recording of offering. So that's where we're going to start. I know I made it seem really exciting that this week we're going to learn about the painfully repetitive recording, but that is in fact what we're going to do. And so when I say painfully repetitive recording, let's go ahead and look at a few lines together. Chapter 7, 1, if anyone has it open and wants to read, I welcome it. If not, I will happily read the verses for you. And Melinda. On the day that Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, correct? Yes. Yep. Making sure I'm in the right place. Excellent. On the day that Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed and consecrated it and all its furnishings, as well as the altar and its utensils. When he had anointed and consecrated them, the chieftains of Israel, the heads of ancestral houses, namely the chieftains of the tribes, those who were in charge of enrollment, drew near and brought their offering before Yudhevavhe, six draught carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two chieftains and an ox for each one. When they had brought them before the tabernacle, Yudhevavhe said to Moses, Accept these from them for use in the service of the tent of meeting and give them to the Levites according to their respective services. Okay, perfect, perfect, perfect. So, so far, what we've got here is the beginning of all these lines that are going to happen. Are we getting hellos, thumbs up, waves? I can't tell. I'm seeing lots of hands. May I speak? 
Sure, I was I was going to uh, to finish the thought, and then I was going to call on you. So I was just checking I if think you were waving or not. Dana has the same thing to say that I do, but I had to get up out of my seat and go and look for it. But this happens to be Naso of our bat mitzvah in 1984. Awesome! This is the cover of it, and Naso sounded so familiar. And I thought, was that my son's, or was that the one that we did? And you can see the people down here were Selma Witties, myself, Dana. Um, some of these people have left. Uh, us now, who you might not know, but down at the bottom of the tree were the six of us who got together and, and decided to be, and we were, I think we were the first B'nai Mitzvah at KI. The first and adult so, B'nai Mitzvah, beautiful. But it was, actually, I'm looking inside now, and we started at um, chapter 21, I think. I mean, uh, Becky, you were yeah. not the first. You oh, were we not were the first. first. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Keep we me were, honest here. I was 42 and I'm 81. So how many years ago is that? 42. I was, yeah, 42 and 81. Uh, yeah. 35 years ago. I think it was Patty Sinaiko. Yeah. And me and, um, Okay. I can see their faces. We can see the connection back to this idea. <laughs> You've actually proven why we study Torah in a cyclical fashion, right? That if we were addressing a new idea, which we do, but with a similar text, we don't have these chances to pull ourselves back into a moment and back into a memory. <laughs> in this portion of Nassau, which I would imagine what you probably read was last year's triennial, uh, the chance to have the Birkata Kohanim is a pretty uh, powerful piece. But today, as I said, our job is actually to dive into what might seemingly be a little bit less uh, engaging of these first lines that tell you exactly what each tribe is going to bring. And then the next 40 lines of just telling you that those tribes brought those things. And so the first question we have to ask is, why would our text do that? I mean, we ha we have right here the six drought carts, the 12 oxen, a cart for every chieftain, and an ox for each. And then they go through and start saying, here's the carts and the ox that each group gave. And so what is the first thing that you think the text is trying to point out by having this repetitive notion of of these words? What do you think the first thing our text is trying to point out is? Yeah, Lee, you're muted right now, so go ahead and unmute to uh to answer. That everybody is is bringing a certain amount, but everybody is bringing something. Okay, so everyone there's, bringing there's something. There's no exemptions from bringing something. Okay, so there's no exemptions, and the other piece of it is it's kind of a reminder of the entirety of the group, right? If you if you just say here the people brought it. It's one thing, but if you then start walking through, and you would see if you start to scroll through, there's slightly new names, right? You know the original tribes, but now we're getting into the breakdowns of the different sections of the tribes. You're starting to see the more full nature of the Israelite population. And so even though it could have maybe been said in a more concise way, one thing to look at right off the bat is by laying it all out and describing what each group is doing, you're really driving home the point of the entirety of the Jewish people and the entirety of the Israelite population. Yet all, they're all giving exactly the same. That's One right. Wagon. That's right. The microphone's on. I just want to double check. Now look at the screen first. Oh, you're good then. All right. 
that's right, that everyone's giving this same gift. Any other thoughts before we start to to continue to to explore this? All right. So not only are they giving the same gifts, we're also going to start again seeing a little bit of like what the Levites are doing and what's different for them and all of that. But so this portion essentially becomes an example of unity and diversity together in one. Each tribe has a function in regards to the dedication of the temple, but each tribe is also required to bring the exact same number of items in a set pattern over the course of 12 days. And within the tribe of Levi, each family and had their functions receive different amounts of gifts to fulfill those functions. If I'm being blunt, this is one of those chapters that we read and question and have to really push is there modern day relevance? Because otherwise, we're talking about 89 lines of recognition of the same gifts over and over and over again. There's a lot of accounting in this Parsha. And it gives us an account of each individual tribe and then adds to the more overall. And so let's look at patterns. Let's begin by looking at patterns to see what we might learn from that. The first pattern that we see is the order that the tribes present themselves. This is a little bit telling of the way in which the narrator wants us to see and understand the listing of tribes. The next is the number of animals provided for each offering. And the third is the amount of gold and silver provided for the blessing of the altar. Now, if we're keeping track, what they talk about is that this incident occurs during the first month of the second year after Exodus. This dedication took place 12, this took 12 days to complete, and it was complete before Passover. And it's important that the pattern was not altered for Shabbat. The more interesting part is that this consecration, if you will, was not ever repeated. Meaning that when Solomon, Ezra, Nehemiah, anyone who tries to reestablish parts of our community in later times after the destruction of the temple, they don't do it the same way. This is a one-time experience. Now, why do I point that out? Often we see Torah as a outline that will be repeated. And so when it's not repeated, we have to ask ourselves, what was the real purpose of this addition being put in? Now, if I was to just jump straight into the critical lens of it, what I would say is we are a little bit back to where we were last week, investigating the tribes themselves. Now, last week, we jumped into the notion of the Levites, and today I want us to start with the notion of 12 tribes. There's an article by Andrew Tobolowsky and it says that the question becomes, did Israel always have 12 tribes? Now, walking on ice in this moment. Yes, George. You're going to need to unmute, George. Perfect. Uh, a slightly different point. It's uh, all tribes uh, give equally and did not take into account that sometimes may be more affluent than others. Current terms, it's a regressive tax rather than a progressive tax or sacrifice, and whether that is important in the scheme of things. Can you so so you said a progressive, not regressive? I missed part of that. Can you repeat that one more time? Since it's all equal, independent of the affluence of the tribes, one would assume some tribes are more affluent than others. 
that uh, it's a uh, regressive tax or sacrifice rather than a progressive tax sacrifice and whether that's relevant here. Nice. Yeah, that's very true. There's a lot to be said about starting on equal footing, right? And the difference between uh, fair and equitable. I, I think you might've seen some of you going through the internet over the last couple of years, there'd be these different pictures of equality versus fairness versus justice. And the notion of like, if you are five foot tall and you're trying to look over a gate and there's a six foot tall person next to you looking over a gate, if you're both on the same size block, are you actually both getting the same amount of experience? And the answer is no. One of you actually needs a higher block than the other one to be able to get the same purview and the same viewpoint. So that is one piece of this where regardless of the uh, of the affluence of the tribe, this is their donation. That's very true. But the other piece that I do think our text is going to start to wink at is the insistence of the 12 tribes. And so asking the question, did Israel always have 12 tribes, kind of sparks a little bit of what we talked about last week with the idea of where are the Levites really coming from? But I want to push that idea a little bit further and ask, did Israel always have the 12 tribes? The depiction of the 12 tribes compromise, uh, com- comprises Israel, uh, starting with Genesis, going all the way through Kings, and it has all these different pieces that try to explain how the territories of Israel divided up begin. Now, we mentioned last week that it's interesting that we have 12 tribes, the Levites don't get So how do we balance that out? Joseph's two sons each get a space. That way the 12 territories still make sense. But there's something interesting to this consistency of the number of 12. When asking, did the 12 tribes exist? We have to first start by saying, what is the narrative that we first learn about these tribes to see if it's even a relevant question that the 12 tribes existed? You have your hand up? So we start with a tale of 12 brothers. Now, when we say 12 brothers, how many brothers do you actually think are relevant to the conversation? There's 12, granted, we talk about the 12 territories, the 12 brothers of Joseph, but how many of the sons are really important if we're looking through a critical lens of trying to understand the territory and leadership model of the later kingdoms of Judah and Israel? Yeah. Okay, Judah, versus who? Reuben. So the story of Jacob's 12 sons begins with the birth in Genesis way, way back, continues with, you know, it goes through Reuben, continues all the way to Benjamin, finally at the conclusion of the Genesis, and taken as a whole, it's the longest literary unit in our Bible. We look at this a lot. The Joseph story spans three Parsha. And from the viewpoint of, you know, in genre, it would be called, you know, a novella of sorts. Like that's kind of really where this story comes from, trying to build up this relationship piece, this drama piece, all these pieces with the the brothers. In fact, going all the way through Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, because it's such a captivating and powerful story. But the main theme of leadership really comes down to Reuben versus Judah. It's the struggle of dominance first between Jacob and his brother Esau, but then later between Leah and Rachel, which really translates over to Reuben and Judah, because each have this different uh, kind of power dynamic. Now, leadership comes with responsibility, and indeed we do find that Reuben playing the role of the elder brother when he tries to save Joseph from his jealous brothers, 
doesn't do a great job of it. He just says, rather than kill him, let's just throw him in a pit. So it's not exactly uh, profound leadership, but it certainly moved the pendulum. It's an interesting spot. I might, I might stop myself here. You know, I said just now that it's not profound leadership to have moved the pendulum. The profound leadership would have been to change their minds and stop the story. But is that true? Is that actually profound leadership today or is that a dream? Is leadership completely switching the narrative or is leadership moving to a safe space from one of an extreme? We, we tend to have this notion that the great leaders guided everyone through all their misguided notions. But, but I think actually in today's experience, great leadership is moving us to a space of safe, not changing everyone's narrative. I'm not sure that's an even possible thing to do anymore. And so I, I stop myself in that moment because I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what leadership looks like. And the idea of making sure that all voices are heard does not mean everyone says, let's kill Joseph. And he says, no, you're thinking completely backwards. Instead, he moves from a space of completely immoral to a space of just unjust. One, two. Actually, go two, one. You already have the mic. Don't worry. You got the mic, don't worry. No, it's, 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 a, it's a really good point, I think. Uh, and I would, I would agree with you that, that, the, that you can't get too far ahead of the people. I mean, even even Moses in convincing the the slaves, the Jewish slaves of Egypt, Eve did it gradually. Like, oh, we're just going to go out and worship for a day. You know, I mean, I mean, I know that's what he was telling Pharaoh, yeah. but it's also what they were hearing as well. So you sort of it sort of sneaks up on on them. And if you look at any sort of revolution, you know, if a revolution takes place too precipitously, it doesn't work out well for anyone. So it's it's more like you know turning a, a aircraft carrier than a uh, speedboat. I, I think yeah. it's, it's probably a sign of maturity on, on your part that you see it that way now. You know, as a radical younger person, you might have. Uh, or like a person four minutes ago. I mean, I had to, <laughs> I had to stop it in the middle. But, but there's something very true to this notion of like, we had to stop and pause and kind of uh, recalibrate our hopes versus our understanding of reality. Um, yeah, so I may be not remembering the Joseph story in enough detail, but it also feels like a really, that feels, I, I totally agree with the point about leadership, but it feels like a really optimistic reading of what Reuben is doing, because I feel like they expected Joseph to die in the pit. And the point was, maybe he can die and also we can do it with our hands clean. Um, but now you're asking a question of relative morality, because in Reuben's, ver- like you're saying hands clean, and at a time, especially when, when the experience, relationship to God, all of that is very much, it's the science, it's the fact, it's the norms of the day, murder is murder. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's a big piece of it. But yes, definitely, he, again, was not swinging the pendulum from, whoa, this is a bad idea, to, okay, now we can feel really good about ourselves. He was actually moving the needle just enough so that we don't end up in as dark of a territory that you can't come back from, right? And I think that's, again, not good. Great, as long as we're at not good on Reuben, I think. Well, so actually, let's go even one step further. The first thought would be Reuben versus Judah. The story actually does that to us because Judah is the one that's later gonna step forward and really rise the occasion when Benjamin is held captive. However, the more interesting part is that over time, Reuben actually becomes really marginalized and the story becomes more Judah and Joseph. 
Joseph, we're told, Jacob's favorite son because he's the son that came from his favorite wife, and Judah, the first son of her sister. And so the story actually ends up being the two of them. Now, why is that important? Because as we go on, this modern critical view of the story is that there's this idea of source critical analysis, right? Attributing different sections um, retroactively. And so that approach would be this. If you look at the breakdown of the tribes once there's territories, we'll go with the easy one first. The kingdom of Judah was being led by the descendants of Judah. That's a simple one. But the kingdom of Israel ends up more or less being centralized around the two sons of Joseph. And the kingdom of Israel ultimately really becomes a leadership of the tribes of Joseph. And so if you start with notions like Numbers 7, where everyone is giving an equal amount, we are able to say all the tribes had equal chance, equal footing, equal opportunity, equal connection to the divine. And so later, when we get to stories of civil war, when we get to stories of the kingdoms against each other, when we get to these different pieces, we have established that no one had a a leg up. Everyone had their fair shot, except for maybe Benjamin, whose tribe is right in the middle of the two territories. And if we really dive into it, somewhat gets split apart and some go to one kingdom and some go to the other. So this notion comes from the tribes. So now I go back to, were there ever actually 12 tribes? Did Israel always have 12 tribes? Was it less than needed to be divided up for territorial reasons? Was it, what do you think from first glance, from hearing the retroactive story, if I ask you, did Israel always have 12 tribes? Raise your hand if the answer is yes. Okay, raise your hand if the answer is no. Now raise your hand if the answer is, I'm not sure, and I'm waiting for the rest of Torah study to figure out how I stand on this idea. Okay, that seems fair. So we have this notion here. So for those of you who said no, can anyone share with me why their gut says, no, Israel did not have 12 tribes? And Melinda, really anyone who wants to share, feel free to unmute and share. Spitballing here, but like are the 12 that made it into the book, just like the 12 that had the most political clout to ensure that they made it into the book. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's a good point. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you compare it to any other place, right? The, um, the idea that that a certain territory would be populated by the descendants of one person, it, it sort of, what makes more sense is the opposite, is that you have the territory first, and then it's populated, and then there's mixing and everything like that. But the fact that that somehow areas would remain uh, just occupied by the descendants of a certain person seems to be the reverse order. The territory should come first. So maybe it's kind of a reverse engineering. Oh, you know, this is the territory that we have but um in in our in our forefathers came this and this but you know the the ter- it starts with the territory i mean if I, if you were just to ask me objectively i would say i bet you it started with the ter- and the person yeah. yeah i'm a little confused so if you're talking about foundational mythology okay this is an origin story very much so why the number 12 but if you're talking about hist- history as it's been given to us there was only a hundred years when all 12 tribes or the people lived as one with the Northern Kingdom. Who knows? So I'll tell you in Dr. Tobolowski's article, 
what he says is that until the 1980s, even with you know the mythological piece to this, there was still this kind of assumed, okay, it wasn't 12 brothers. Like we're not talking about 12 brothers here, but we are talking about the 12 tribes. That there was probably a 12 set fraction that operated as this kingdom until the 1980s. And after that, against the backdrop of growing kind of skepticism about recreating the early history of Israel based on biblical sources, many scholars started to doubt the 12 tribe system and whether the earliest versions of the tradition assume the existence of 12 tribes at all. Now that's fascinating. Part of the reason skepticism derives from scholars questioning when and how Judah in the South and Israel in the North began to see themselves as related. In fact, several scholars suggest that the biblical version of Israelite identity was invented in Judah after the exile of the Northern Kingdom and likely as a way of claiming an Israelite identity that may not have been theirs from the beginning. That it isn't actually that they were once 12, it was a creation of the number 12 to make sense so that the story would fit. Why? Because which version do we have today? We are descendants, or the story at least is a descendant of the kingdom of Judah. And so there almost seems to be a survival aspect to that. And even though most of the tribes list were composed in Judah only after the fall of Israel, for much of the 20th century, biblical scholars did not see this as problematic since they understood that most traditions, especially in the Torah, as little more than reflection of an earlier oral literature. So they didn't see any problem with the fact that a majority of the information that we have about the 12 tribes was coming from Judah after Israel ceased to exist. But scholars are now beginning to recognize that most 12 tribe lists are in fact very late Judahide lists and that the 12 tribes concept is a very late Judahide idea, which means it ostensibly contradicts, you know, the whole notion of having 12 tribes. How does the prophets then? Okay. So right here, the song of Devorah in Judges 5. Let's start there. The oldest of all the tribal lists, according to many scholars, which is interesting because now we're looking at the, the when each thing is written, we're saying that this piece was later, does not present the standard 12 tribes. First, it depicts Gilead and Mahir, usually treated as part of Manasseh. So here in Judges 5, it says, from Mahir came down leaders from Zebulon, such as hold the martial staff. Gilead tarried be, uh, beyond the Jordan. Dan, why did he linger by the ships? This song also leaves out altogether in Judges, Judah, Simeon, Levi, and Gad. So one of the first pieces is that actually in the book of Judges, we've got spots where they don't start by naming 12. They don't even reference them. Now, again, you can see this as we're at a point where they're already seeing them as territories. So it's a different relationship, but it's possible that the tribes listed in Judges 5 don't give us a comprehensive version of early Israel since only the tribes that actually participated in ancient war would have been on their mind. Uh, Dana. Um, I might've missed some of your explanation, but the thread of 12 brothers and 12 tribes in terms of the order of when things were written, I mean, it does match up. So were the 12 brothers invented, I'm, you know, before the idea of the, you know, when you're talking about the order of 
the storytelling. Yeah, so, so if we're looking at biblical criticism, we have to recognize that the story in Genesis is definitely projected back from an experience known uh, later in biblical text. But that's why we would look at something like Judges. And so what I'm really getting at, because I, I know it's getting a little bit into a complicated territory, is there is reason to question whether or not there were actually 12 tribes. Now, we can simply write that off by saying, yeah, of course, that's, that's half the battle of studying Torah is figuring out where this historical relevance uh, connects into our biblical relevance. But at the same time, I think it's telling because what Numbers 7 is trying to do is to create a equality and a connectivity beyond the 12 tribes, which becomes important if you're trying to figure out, do all of these areas, do all of the tribes, do all the territories have an equal and fair connection and claim to the tradition? And honestly, part of what makes me want to drive down that specific part of the wormhole is the stuff that we're not mentioning at all, which is the three or four lines that happened right before this triennial, which was the Birkat Hakonim. This notion that you can pass blessing and let anyone know that they in fact have an opportunity to be a part of this experience and bring blessing onto the earth. And then in the next piece, we really make sure that everyone feels like they're a part of the system. And again, make sure it's 89 lines of what was given, why it was given, what their role is, how that relates, et cetera, et cetera. The 12 tribes need to have an establishment because otherwise it does call into question and put into jeopardy the relationship moving forward of the lineage of the people. Hand went up and down. Anyone have any thoughts here? Okay. Yes. Um, I think it's just because I'm like a little fuzzy on the history, but is the reason why all of this is coming from Judah is simply because like the nation of Israel has been dissolved and so they're not available to tell the story rather than like a uh, narrative that Judah is trying to push? Yes, and, right? So A, there is a narrative Judah is trying to push. The question is, are they trying to push that narrative because they're trying to prove value over the kingdom of Israel? Or are they trying to prove that narrative, push that narrative, because the kingdom of Israel has already dissolved and the last chance to connect to this kingdom, this cultic faith to keep this tradition alive is for Judah to be the ancestor of, and ends up being the ancestor of Judaism, right? So we are not Israelites anymore. We are Jewish people of Judaism because we are descendants of the kingdom of Judah. So the reason that this all becomes important is, do we have ownership to all of this? And so if you follow the idea that they may not have been an actual tribe, then what they're doing is they're building in authenticity to that connection, which for some of you in the room is going to feel uncomfortable. For other people in the room, it's going to feel obsolete. If the whole point of this is the mythological piece, is the connective piece, is the religious piece, who cares if they are actually descendants? And for others, we grow up with the notion of 12 tribes. The idea that that might actually be a conflated story calls into question a lot for people. And this is where we all have to decide as biblical explorers how we want to engage in the material. I often am not 
the biblical criticism engager. I, I keep biblical criticism in the back of my mind. I recognize that it is uh, written by the hand of human, divinely inspired by God, but I tend to try to extract meaning that helps me with my spiritual connection to the world around me. And so let's let's take that vein a little bit because we've done the 20 plus minutes of exploring this idea of whether or not it is actual, authentic, factually. Now let's get into what offerings are all about. 89 lines of offering. So what are we supposed to understand as an offering? Now many people have this idea that as we approach God, that we approach God to get something from God. But that's not the way our tradition begins this explanation. The tradition begins this explanation that we actually go to God by offering something. That we should always have something to give to God in this moment. So the question becomes, what do you give to God in the day when we don't have a temple now? Number seven, it's quite easy. What you give to God is the explanation that's been written down. What you give to God is the sacrifices that were listed out in previous weeks. But what do you give to God when you no longer have the temple? What we give is we give our sincerity. We give our desire for truth. We give our exploration of this tradition and say we dug deep because we cared about the actual essence of the lesson, that we give our honor and our integrity to this, which is where it comes to this last piece, is like the sweet smell of incense. Now you might be saying, Rabbi, that feels like a really interesting curveball. Why are we talking about incense now? There's one other really interesting piece in this week's Parsha. When Moses finally has built the Mishkan, anoints with the oils and sacrifices it in all the the vessels, which is how we started this piece, we have to remember that that is about smell. There is a uh, tangible experience to the smell, to the olfactory experience. And I can't remember exactly where I first learned it, but I remember this piece of Jewish mystical tradition in which oil represents divine wisdom right? And in it, that the, the sanctuaries that stand empty now during these periods of, of you know, uh, when the sanctuaries are stand empty, how great it was to sit around the table and to be in the experience, to taste the sweetness of the wine, to smell the, the incense and the oils. And so this, this lesson comes from this idea of how to study Talmud. You see, when you're in rabbinical school, they'll try to teach you different ways to engage and study Talmud. One of them was that they'll give you a small hevruta, your small connection of group of people. They'll tell you to go study one small section. In fact, like take a week, learn just that one small section, and then come back and share with everyone what you've learned. And there's this story about a teacher. I want to say, I don't remember which seminary. That's what's bothering me in this moment in which students began to speak and were cut off by the stern teacher very quickly, telling all of them, you're not smelling the passage right. You're not smelling it. And he almost kicked them out and said, don't come back until you can smell the sugia correctly. That's interesting, right? You're not smelling it right. What does the teacher mean by that? You're not taking in all of it. You're not understanding the wholeness of this experience. Well, that's actually part of what we get in Naso. In the temple time, the priests would help the Jews offer their sacrifices and the smell of the sacrifices would rise up to the heavens and would be pleasing to God. We've talked about this. That's the whole idea of the korban. 
And so there's this idea that one of the Kohan's essential functions was to offer pleasing odors of our essence, of the experience on this earth, up to God. Think about the people you know best, truly best, closest, the people you hold dearest. Think about giving that person a hug. Do the people you love most have a distinct smell? Do you know that that smell of certain experiences that you have, the smell of someone's shampoo when you give them a hug? I, I, you know, yesterday was my son's graduation from preschool and we were sitting on the playground and one of the moms held her son dear and took a deep breath in and said, he smells like maple syrup. Now, there was pancakes at breakfast, but her point was actually taken that there is a sweetness to the way his childhood smells, that there is almost a deeper sense of knowing when you can identify a person, not just by who they are, not just by how they look, not just by their relationship, but almost by their smell, the deep, intimate, personal relationship that comes from smell. Well, the same is true of us and God. When God can smell us, when we are hugged tight by God, when we are offering a part of our experience, we have a better chance of actually being engaged in divine blessing. I love that lesson. I love this notion that inside this experience, the reason they drive so deeply into what is being learned is that there's something to be said about each time you offer driving closer and closer together until your smell is a distinct smell known by the much like the smell. When I changed, this might be too much information. I, one time I ran out of deodorant and had to run to the corner store and they didn't have the normal deodorant I use. And I bought a different one and I was wearing it and my wife said, you don't, that you don't smell like you. It's still me. Same person, same clothes, same attitude, same humor, same everything. You don't smell like you. Because for the people that you are closest with, this is in fact a real piece of how you engage. When we're finally close enough to this text, when we dive in deep enough to this text to smell it, its meanings and its blessings become all the more relevant. Yes, Dana. Well, speaking of relevancy and the Torah of today, I mean, the Torah is ahead of time because of the concept of pheromones and what that means and relationships. And, you know, uh, I think they were spot on scientifically speaking yeah it's pretty wild when you when you see that side i definitely agree and there's something real to it there's a ride at disneyland uh california adventure called soaring over the usa now or soaring over the world or one of those and it started as soaring over california and the best part of that ride was when the 3d imax would take you over the orange groves of california they would pump the smell of oranges into the space and it literally messed with your mind. You felt so much more in that space because of that. So there is something to be said about engaging with one of these different senses. And smell is one particularly powerful when it comes to establishing that meaning. Yeah, Rita. Can you please unmute, though, really quickly? Um, apparently, neuroscientists have found that the center of your smell senses in the brain is very close to your emotional center and we all experience that uh, you know we have a, a whiff of something and a memory comes back so i think uh that is another connection yeah i agree lee uh conversely i re i recall when my husband was in the hospital uh, seriously ill 
there was actually no smell because there were so many, he was hooked up to so many things. And when he started to heal again, that his smell returned. So it's, it was interesting because it was mechanic. He was, he was being kept alive mechanically. And then when he was able to, you know, come miraculously come back, his smell returned to me, which was an interesting thing. Yeah. And, you know, smell isn't something that we often were talking about nearly as much until the last two years. <laughs> until this became been two parts a when the sense of smell became a very real part of the the symptoms of covid and b until separation right like mm -hmm. let's be very real here one of the biggest things that we worried about in june july of 2020 when this had gone on for more than for three months when we realize, oh, this is not just going to be over and return to, to everything is how do we give each other our deepest blessings when we can't be near each other, when we can't smell each other? How do we actually give each other that depth of support that it would take to be siblings, to be family, to be the 12 tribes that are about to have to figure out how to continue to operate both as family and now as functioning tribes. If you can't get close enough to smell. I think the establishment of all these different pieces in number seven is really saying if you are going to remain a family, if you are going to function as a kingdom, if you're going to make it more, Mark, like you said, less than a hundred years, if they're going to make it, they have to continuously be a familial unit still to have to have that camaraderie. They have to have that respect. They have to have those gathering points. And if they don't, they're not going to have any chance of surviving it together. And what do we see as the tribes continue to spread off into their own, as they continue to kind of develop in their own spaces, they end up fracturing and break. And there's a lot to be said that they weren't close enough. They didn't stay spiritually connected enough. They weren't emotionally tied to each other and in proximity enough to really stay together. Bad response. I don't want your, I don't want any of this children being said who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Go back to the most raw, authentic connection that you gave to me. Right. Because you know, all this time I keep talking about the tribes, but, but you're absolutely right. That smell piece. Like I said, we, we offer up that smell to the divine. That's the part that ends up missing. They get so deeply focused on expansion and growth and modern and this and that and the other that God's, I, but all that is immaterial. I, I'm not getting that spiritual hug anymore. I'm not smelling that love. I know it's, it sounds so bizarre when we first say it, but I'm not smelling that love is such an important piece of this. Yeah. I just wanted to, I mean, now that we're back on the subject of the, the tribes, there was a, you know, I think of it, you know, over Passover when we do the four sons and it's always a, I have four children. So, it, you know, they, I always sort of soften a little bit by saying, well, we all, you know, it, it's sort of a, um, we, through the phases of our lives, we've been each one of these people, you know, we're not all evil. We're not all, you know, it's sort of a, a mix of, of personalities rather than, than just one single thing. And I, you know, when you think of the blessings that, um, Jacob gives to his sons. Um, 
it's it's sort of different traits which which um, which sort of comprise a nation basically. It's not that one tribe is going to be all this, like all seafarers and all warriors or all. Um, and in a way, I would argue that the in in that spirit, the tribes sort of survive in 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 the people because the attributes survive. It was never supposed to be. I mean, if we're talking about the mythology of it, it was never supposed to be. Um, that separated it really represented the attributes of a of a nation and it's not like you were going to have all of the this kind of people in one area and all of this kind of people in another area and all aristocrats in one area it was all a big a big mix up and and if you if you look at it that way the tribes are really um a description of the types of people that comprise a nation rather than distinct ethnic groups or or tribal groups that's all yeah Anyone else have any closing thoughts on this week's Torah portion from our from our gallery view too? I'll tell you, there's a lot of ways to connect this. Um, one way that that really gives me this direction is that there are days that we're going to feel this low, feel like we might have fallen, feel like we, you know, are are drifting apart and failing as the tribes did, and that what we have to know is that we have the ability to get up again to find the day that we will return to one another, to hug one another, to have that smell, that sense, that knowing of the individuality of another person, what we can learn from another person. And when we do that, we're going to drive ourselves back closer to the divine, much like the gifts and the offerings that were being mentioned in this. When we can realize what we're bringing to the table, we can realize what we're worth in that sense, that's, that's going to give us the opportunity to truly have that familiar relationship both with all of the people around us and with the divine.